According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Jeremiah chapter 49. Jeremiah 49. And I tell you, this is going to be a, a long chapter, a fun chapter. Um, I may keep you here till midnight, but we're going to finish it. It's actually not as long as 1551. Now those are some long chapters too. So stay tuned. Uh, between now and uh, for the next three weeks, we've got a lot, of, a lot of material to cover in front of us related to the conclusion of this book. And maybe it's not quite so long as it is. It's just five different messages all contained in one chapter. Uh, we had Moab uh, uh, last week. We got Ammon and Edom and Damascus and Kedar and Hazor and Hay- that's combined, Kedar, Hazor, and then Elam to wrap up the chapter. So we got five segments of this chapter that we want to deal with. And uh, they're not happy messages for any of them. So we can kind of get that up front uh, taken care of. Uh, but the, the role of Jeremiah as the prophet to the Gentiles, the prophet to the nations, and the ministry that he had to those Gentile nations, I think it's significant. And this collection of messages at the end of the book is, is excellent. The way that it was compiled, the way it was put together, and the doctrine that's contained. For Israel, for the church, the doctrine that's contained, there's a reason why not only were those individual Gentile nations addressed, but why are these paragraphs here in our Bibles, Right? You say, who cares about Kedar? I never even heard of Kedar. Kedar ain't even on the planet anymore. Kedar's dead and buried and gone. There are, I mean, have you seen any Kedarites lately? Who are these guys? Okay, So the history of it maybe bores you to tears, but the application of it is still alive and powerful today. And what was written is written for our instruction. And we, we, we have to be uh, humble before the authority of the Word of God, even for Kedarites and Hazorites and people, Elamites, other folks we might not otherwise know very much of as it comes to the Scriptures. All right. Well, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So let's begin with a word of silent prayer, asking the Father to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank You for the blessings of Your Word, and we thank You for the privilege we have to assemble together Father, we thank you for this building, the facility that keeps us dry in the rain and the storms. Thank you for a refuge and uh, ask for your continued blessing upon us, your hand of shelter, your hand of protection. Father, uh, hedge us about, protect us from anyone that want to come in here and stop what we're doing or bring us to harm. Father, we realize that uh, the hedge is being lowered and our nation is under judgment and there's more and more that's happening. Workplaces are becoming more and more dangerous. And uh, we, we identify with that. And so we come before you in your hands, uh, in uh, calling upon your faithfulness day by day and moment by moment. So Father, bless our time of study today. Open the eyes of our understanding. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we begin with Ammon. The first six verses of this chapter are very much a follow-up to last week. And so what we were dealing with last week in terms of Moab, we can uh, repeat today with respect to Ammon, although it's a lot shorter. Uh, Moab last week, you know, had 47 verses to work through. Uh, Ammon, the brother of Moab, gets six verses. So uh, competition between brothers is sometimes pretty fierce. Uh, But in this case, uh, Moab wins this uh, competition because he got 47 verses and Ammon only got six. Concerning the sons of Ammon, thus says the Lord, does Israel have no sons or has he no heirs? Why then has Malcolm taken possession of Gad and his people settled in its cities? Malcolm is the God of the Ammonites. Uh, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will cause a trumpet blast uh, of war to be heard against Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Rab is the capital city. Today it's the modern Ammon uh, Jor- uh, uh, capital of Jordan, Amon, Jordan. And it will become a desolate heap and her towns will be set on fire. Then Israel will take possession of his possessors. Okay, The shoe will be on the other foot. Uh, the Ammonites that were taking possession of Jewish cities are now going to find Israel taking possession of what God has promised them. Uh, So Israel will take possession of his possessors, says the Lord. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai has been destroyed. Cry out, O daughters of Rabbah. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament 
and rush back and forth inside the walls. For Malcolm will go into exile together with his priests and his princes. How boastful you are about the valleys. Your valley is flowing away, O backsliding daughter, who trusts in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I am going to bring terror upon you, declares the Lord God of hosts, from all directions around you, and each of you will be driven out headlong with no one to gather the fugitives together. Then verse 6, But afterward I will restore the fortunes of the sons of Ammon, declares the Lord. You know, it's staggering to me. Just reading through the first five verses, you think, all right, that's it. Ammon, they're getting it. They're getting what's coming to them. All right, they're getting the, the whatnot, okay? Uh, but then you look at verse 6 and you say, wow, God is a God of grace and Ammon has a future. Like Moab, we saw last week, Moab has a future. The final verse of chapter 48, you'll spot that there in verse 47. He says, yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. And so if you've ever done studies on the campaign of Armageddon, if you've ever done studies on what the tribulation of Israel is going to be like and the hand of God's mercy in certain places for the Jewish people, it's not because the Moabites deserve it, it's not because the Ammonites deserve it, it's not because the Edomites deserve it. The places of refuge are in God's grace, places that the Jewish people are going to find uh, deliverance from Antichrist. And so those places are spared from the wrath of Antichrist in, uh, in his invasion. So a week ago we talked about Moab and Moab's pride. Just like Moab, uh, Ammon has a pride issue. And Ammon's pride brings about destruction. That's a universal principle. Pride goeth before the fall. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so nations that thrive in satanic pride are nations that are setting themselves up for divine judgment. And uh, that's what we're dealing with here. Now, uh, Jeremiah is not the only prophet to address this. A couple weeks ago, I think I gave you a little bit of a schedule over the whole ending of Jeremiah, including chapters 46, 47, 48, all the way to 51 and even 52. But these final chapters that detail the Gentile messages have parallels in other prophets. And so uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time in these. Uh, We might hit a little bit of Amos. Uh, We might hit a little bit of Zephaniah, but we're not going to spend a lot of time in these. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 21 and Ezekiel chapter 25. Ezekiel hits it twice. Uh, In chapter 21 is verses 28 through 32, and in chapter 25 is verses 2 through 10. And you'll spot that as you turn to those chapters and you see the verses within those chapters where the Lord is addressing Ammon. Keep in mind that Ezekiel is a contemporary of Jeremiah, slightly later than Jeremiah, a younger man than Jeremiah, off in captivity since 597, and uh, he's been in prophetic ministry since his 30th birthday. So uh, many of his messages overlap with Daniel and with Jeremiah. Amos. Amos is a lot earlier than Jeremiah. In fact, there's probably a lot of material from Amos that Jeremiah himself is borrowing and adapting in his own writing. So Amos 1 verses 13 through 15. And then Zephaniah, contemporary with Isaiah, uh, and so would also be earlier than Jeremiah. So Zephaniah chapter 2 verses 8 through 11. Not going to spend a ton of time on those, but if you want to do more research, knock yourself out. Uh, and have tons of fun with Ammon. The Ammonites are a fascinating study, just like the Moabites. Birth by Lot with his daughter in that sad cave and, and the, the story there and that you read about in, uh, in Genesis. But there it is, Genesis 19. You want the birth of Ammon and the birth of Moab. Background for the, these verses, though, Ammon took advantage of Gad's territory when the Assyrians were stripping away portions of Israel. And so this is what's addressed here uh, in verse 1 when it says, does Israel have no sons or has he no heirs? The point is, is the land is not free for the taking. The land belongs to the tribes to whom it has been given. And it is theirs in perpetuity. Eternally it is their land grant. And so their children, their children's children, each coming generation is entitled to that land. And if Assyria has swept away a tribe, Or if Assyria has swept away ten tribes, that does not change the reality that God has given that land to the Jewish people. 
And so they will be restored. And that land belongs to those tribes. And so uh, the, particularly the region of Gad, remember it was Gad and, and Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh? No, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They kept some of their inheritance on the eastern side of the Jordan River. That's the land that Ammon was very quick to, to start scarfing up and start to uh, obtain for themselves. And you can kind of spot it there on the map. Uh, Ammon is over here, and they wanted to push uh, their boundaries all the way to the Jordan River, and so they just kind of expanded to the west uh, in order to uh, to grab some territory there as uh, the Assyrians came through. That takes me back or not. There we go. Uh, if you want some of the history on this, we can turn to Second Kings chapter 15 and see the, the narrative. Second Kings chapter 15. So we're backing up in time to pre-722 when uh, there still was a northern kingdom of Israel. And they started to lose some of their land, a little piece here, a little piece there, right? Just be careful. A lot of times uh, an invading king will come along and he's talking peace, but he doesn't mean peace. What he means is, you know, pieces of you (laughs) that he wants to take for himself, okay? Anyway, 2 Kings 15 in verse 29, um, backing up to 27, in the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, well, he reigned a long time, uh, in his 52nd year, Pekah, son of Ramaliah, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the son, sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which, uh, with which he made Israel sin little clue in the north, every one of them was evil. They did not have a single good king in the north. Uh, In the south, there were some good, some bad. Verse 29 then, in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Peleser, king of Assyria, came and captured uh, these places, Ejon and Abel-Bethmachah and Genoa and Kedesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee and all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. And Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, and struck him and put him to death and became king in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. And so there's the uh, history of the second to last, the penultimate king of the northern kingdom. And in the process of losing these territories, uh, the coup is then engineered and Hosea, uh, by conspiracy, takes the throne for himself. And uh, so here we see the beginning of the very last king of the northern kingdom, because Hosea is the last. And uh, if there was dissatisfaction over Pekah losing all this land, well, the the dissatisfaction will only grow because Hosea is going to lose the rest of it. So that's the background. Now you can imagine, uh, as I get back now to Jeremiah 49, um, why are you grabbing all this land? Why has Malcolm taken possession of Gad? Why does your false god... Uh, think that he can take custody of this territory and hand it to his worshipers, hand it to his nation, all right? Yahweh says, that's still my land, they're still my people, and uh, they will have their inheritance. So Ammon had taken advantage of Gad's territory. And so many applications we can make here, by the way. We, uh, we want to be cautious ourselves in our own applications. If you observe a brother, you observe a sister, maybe they are going through divine discipline, what does that mean? Is that your open door opportunity to go start grabbing stuff? <laughs> uh, do you take advantage of somebody else's misfortune? Is that uh, what we're called to do? Or uh, are we called to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ? Are we, are we uh, called to love one another in, in, obviously in these applications? It's a pretty easy uh, sermon to preach when it comes to that. We're not taking advantage of, of someone else's misfortune. Like Moab, Ammon was an object of Jeremiah's previous preaching. This is now the third time we've come across the Ammonites in the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 25, when he took his world tour, he had to go to the king of Ammon and make him drink from that golden cup. You remember that? In Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah, I believe he literally physically traveled uh, to all of these kings with a cup in hand to have them drink and hear the message that Yahweh had for them. In, uh, in that context. So Jeremiah 25, verse 21 is the verse that, that highlights the Ammonites. And then in chapter 27, 
there had been a little conspiracy going and some of the neighboring kings sent some uh, envoys to Jerusalem and uh, part of the hush-hush secret meeting they were having was to discuss what they might do to uh, rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, to, re- to rebel against Babylon. And uh, the Lord sent Jeremiah in to interrupt their meeting, <laughs> right? And uh, he put stocks on his head and he walked around in stocks and he says, hey, guess what, guys? Uh, this is what's going to happen to you. So quit quit trying to plot against Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the servant of Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar is being given world dominion in his, in his generation. And uh, so we had the, the message there in chapter 27. And then you might recall fairly recently in chapter 40, um, Ammon didn't appear, but he was mentioned because the king that hired the assassin to, to kill Gedaliah, do you remember that? Um, there was Ishmael was the assassin and he was being paid to, to murder uh, Gedaliah. Gedaliah was the, the governor that Nebuchadnezzar put in place after uh, Zedekiah was removed. And um, anyway, the, Ammon, uh, the Ammonite king, King Balas, um, he's the one, Balas, who, uh, who ordered the hit. He's the one that funded it. He paid for the assassin. And, uh, and so when Ishmael came in chapter 40 and 41, uh, and you remember Gedaliah was warned about it, but didn't believe it, didn't believe that, uh, that the assassination plot was real and uh, learned too late that it was very real. <laughs> so those are the Ammonites. And so we've, we've touched upon the Ammonites already three times in the process of this book. And now for the final time, uh, we have a six-verse message that says uh, that they are uh, about to be destroyed. All right, They can't count on their money. They can't, co- they can't boast in their wealth. They can't boast in their remote valleys. Uh, for the most part, they were so far away and so hard to get to that uh, it was not worth the effort for a, a military to go and get them. Um, and uh, plus they had supplies. They could withstand a siege better than the besieging armies could. They had a lot going for them defensively. And God says, none of that counts because I'm going to destroy you. And that's uh, what we see here. Uh, later on, if you're curious about future uh, Old Testament history, after Israel returns from captivity under the Persians, uh, Ammonites are going to be quote-unquote governed. Uh, they're not going to have their own nation ever again, but there will be a population center and there will be um, a bit of a, of a self-rule and a bit of a uh, stay out of trouble and pay your tribute kind of thing. And uh, so their governor if you want to call him that, their appointed agent, might be a better term, is a fellow by the name of Tobiah. And uh, uh, in some studies that, uh, that are coming up, some of the, the post-captivity studies that Lewis Roth has been working on, by the way, they come out of Ezra, they come out of Nehemiah, a portion of the Old Testament that, that we're really not very, very good with, uh, very unfamiliar to us, uh, is Ezra and Nehemiah, um, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, basically the post-captivity Old Testament uh, studies uh, is what uh, Lewis has been working on. You're going to get a couple Wednesdays on that coming up uh, here at the end of the month. Anyway, so just keep that in mind. Tobiah is a name you're going to encounter. And he was a bit of a troublemaker. He caused trouble for Nehemiah. He influenced things, trying to keep the, the walls from being rebuilt, trying to keep the temple from being rebuilt. Uh, he and Sanballat and some of the other uh, uh, rascals there. They were very much troublemakers in, uh, in the book of Nehemiah. All right. So there is that. In verse 7, we move on to concerning Edom. Concerning Edom. Thus says the Lord of hosts, is there, any, is there no longer any wisdom in Teman? Has good counsel been lost to the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? Flee away, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring the disaster of Esau upon him at the time I punish him. If uh, grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? If thieves come by night, they would destroy only until they've had enough. But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places so that he will not be able to conceal himself. His offspring has been destroyed along with his relatives and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave your orphans behind. I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. So verses 7 through 11 now is the message directed towards Edom or Esau. 
Edom, verse 7, Esau, verse 8, same, same name, okay? Same person, same nation. Edom's worldly wisdom is brought to an end by the Lord's wrath. Edom's worldly wisdom is brought to an end by the Lord's wrath. Now, wait, I stopped at verse seven, uh, 11. It goes on. It goes all the way down to verse 22. Edom's worldly wisdom is brought to an end by the Lord's wrath. All right, so the next section here, we've got to deal with Edom, the twin brother of Israel. Twinned brother to Israel. Again, I'll put the map up. We'll have a chance to look at that. Jeremiah is not the only prophet to address the Edomites. Um, Isaiah, at length, spoke on the Edomites in Isaiah chapter 34. And there's some concepts there that we need to take a look at, the details there related to that, that uh, I think go beyond the, the Nebuchadnezzar experience and actually start to look ahead to the coming tribulation of Israel. So Isaiah 34, verses 5 through 17. Ezekiel chapter 25, the same chapter we had reference there uh, with respect to the Ammonites. He also addresses the Edomites, Ezekiel 25, verses 12 through 14, as well as chapter 35, verses 1 through 15. Ezekiel gets two cracks at the Edomites. Amos, Amos chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, and then the entire book of Obadiah. All right, You ever wonder what Obadiah is about? Say, who pays attention to Obadiah? Well, it's one of the minor prophets. It's one of the 12 books of the Old Testament, uh, the minor prophets of the Old Testament. It's a single chapter in length. And it's all about God's wrath upon the Edomites. And so uh, 21 verses there of God's judgment. And all of these, you want to put these together. If you're going to do a comprehensive study on the eschatological framework, God's wrath upon the Edomites, you, you can't leave any of these out. They all have to come together in, in, a, in a synthesis. We're not doing that today, by the way. <laughs> not the function of this, of this hour. Whereas Ammon and Moab were Israel's cousins, Edom was Israel's twin. And so of the nations that should have known better, of the nations that were in proximity, Ammon and Moab were cousins. Remember, they were descended from Lot, and Lot was Abraham's nephew. You remember that? And so the, the, the nations then of Ammon and Moab are, are cousin nations to Abraham, cousin nations to the Jewish people. They are largely, I mean, they are Semitic. They are Abrahamic in the sense that Lot was Abrahamic as a cousin, as a nephew, all right? They lived as neighbors. They lived just to the east of the Jordan River. So they were in proximity. Proximity means a couple of things, okay? It means you're close enough to hear things. And if you're humble, you can hear truth and move there, right? Think about Ruth. Think about the Moabitess, Ruth, and, uh, and how she uh, loved the Lord. And she said, I, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And close enough to move there and live there. In fact, David, when uh, Saul was hunting him down, David found a refuge for his parents. He was able to take Jesse and Mrs. Jesse and uh, his mom and dad, in other words, and stash them away in a, in a hideout in Moab because they were nearby. So proximity can be a good thing, but proximity can also be a bad thing if, in fact, the peer pressure from, you know, that neighbor kid, stay away from that neighbor kid, okay, the, the influences there become a problem. And what we learn early on is that those Moabite women were not the kind of women that you wanted your boys to be uh, involved with, okay? And they were kind of legendary in that, uh, in that capacity. So... Um, Ammon and Moab, they may have been cousins, but Edom was Israel's twin. Remember that. Uh, Isaac and, and Rebekah, uh, Isaac uh, gave birth there, or Rebekah gave birth there to Jacob and Esau, right? Twin boys. And Esau was actually the older. Esau was the older. Jacob, you know, the heel grabber. Uh, Jacob's kind of, that's, that's Jacob's style, right? Um, and so that, uh, we have the twin nation. Now, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? Not Esau. He's a son of Abraham. He's a son of Isaac. means he's a son of promise. He's not like Ishmael. He's a son of Isaac. But he's not Jacob. And that makes all the difference. So he's not the object of the covenant. He's not uh, the one in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and we read about this in Deuteronomy 23, 
by the way, when they're crossing through, they're, they're leaving Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, they're wandering in the wilderness, they're coming around the long way around, and they're going to enter Israel from the east, which means they have to go past Ammon and Moab and Edom. And as they're going through and past Ammon and Moab and Edom, God is giving them instructions. So let me just grab this here. Deuteronomy 23. Um, <laughs> painful chapter to start. Um, we'll skip. We'll skip verse 1. <laughs> um, but no, okay, we can't skip it. Uh, keep in mind, Israel was an earthly nation. And the requirements of their holiness, the requirements of their priesthood, the requirements of their covenant relationship, they were all physical requirements. They held their priesthood on the basis of physical requirements. Not like us. We hold our priesthood on the basis of the indestructible life we have in Christ. What a blessing. So, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Why is that? What's wrong with, with those? Uh, I mean, it's not the baby's fault, right? I mean, just because their mom and dad weren't married, it's not the baby's fault. Why are we punishing the baby? There's a principle, there's a point related to legitimacy and illegitimacy, and there's a function for marriage related to the legitimate raising of children as unto the Lord. Anyway, none of his descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So, I mean, you're doing any genealogy work? You were doing any family tree work? You go back, how many generations can you go back? Is there a bastard anywhere in those 10 generations going back? You'd be disqualified under these requirements. Likewise, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet, with you, meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing, all right, and so we see that there. Get down to the Edomites, verse 7. You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. The twin brother to Jacob was Esau. The twin nation to Israel is Edom. You shall not detest an Egyptian, because you are an alien in his land. So the sons of the third generation who are born to them, so Edomites and Egyptians, not the tenth generation, the third generation now. The sons of the third generation who are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. Okay, And so this is interesting, particularly when you have laws that govern your border. Shock. Especially when you have laws that govern citizenship. When you have laws that govern who participates in certain activities, such as the assembly of the Lord. Okay, the solemn assembly. We're talking about Passover observance, Pentecost observance, all the feasts, Day of Atonement, all of the the uh, spiritual life of Israel, in order to partake, um, not for the 10th generation of a Moabite or Ammonite, but only the third generation of an Edomite. And so uh, there's details there. Beyond uh, that, the Edomites were known for their secular wisdom. We've seen Teman mentioned here a couple times. Uh, Teman was a leading city of, the, of Edom. And uh, one of Job's critics was uh, a Temanite, right? In fact, the Eliphaz, the first of the three troublemakers, was Eliphaz the Temanite, see? And, um, of course, that leads to some debates and disputes and arguments about the dating of Job in, uh, in aspects there. Uh, but between Job 2.11 and Obadiah 8, it's very clear that the Edomites are known for their wisdom. So doesn't that count for something? You know, it seems like, isn't all truth God's truth? So if you've got some people that are wise in, in a sense, that's good enough, isn't it? What's wrong with Edomites using Edomite wisdom? See, we only use Christian wisdom because we were born here. They, you know, if, if we were born there, we would be using Edomite wisdom, okay? I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek this morning, but you understand where I'm going with this? Because this is the, the lie of pluralism, the lie of, of multiculturalism that, that's constantly being shoved down our throats that is in defiance of the way, the truth, and the life. 
That is the exclusive claims that God himself makes. All right. Known for their wisdom, yet hostile to the God of Israel. So what kind of wisdom is it? What kind of wisdom is it if it's hostile to the God of Israel? Well, turn to James 3 sometime and you'll see there's two different kinds of wisdom. The wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. And the wisdom from below is earthly, natural, demonic. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle. And uh, you'll see what I'm talking about there if you turn to spend some time in James chapter 3 this afternoon. Hostile to the God of Israel. Read in Numbers 20 and you'll spot that. Numbers 20, verses 20 and 21. That whole segment of Numbers where King Balak is, is hiring Balaam to curse Israel and, and the difficulty that Edom has with them there. I think Edom was terrified and uh, refused them uh, safe passage and they had to go around because Edom was not going to let them walk through their land even though uh, they promised. They said, we won't touch anything. We won't, we won't rummage through your fields. We'll stay on the road. We, we won't trespass. And uh, Edom said, no, go around. And uh, they went around. Anyway, that's in uh, Numbers chapter 20. Some additional history here as it relates to uh, the Edomites, by the way. After Israel returns from captivity under the Persians, um, same thing as with the Ammonites, same thing with most of these southern, uh, the southern region here. They're, they're no longer a nation. They no longer identify as a nation. They have a, p- a people group. They identify with a certain population center. Uh, Edomites were displaced by Nabataeans. And in fact, their, their, their geography was lost to them. The, the, the Nabataeans were a, a, an Arab tribe or a collection of Arab tribes that came in from the desert, similar to, to Keter and Hazor that we're going to see here next. Uh, they were, the Nabataeans were, were Arab tribes. They moved in and they took the whole territory of Edom away from the Edomites. And so the Edomites then crossed over to southern Judah and they took Hebron and they took Bathsheba and they took some of the southern regions away from what used to be Judah. And they set up a headquarters there. And they started living there as Edomites. Uh, and they took on a Latin name of Idumeans. They were known to the Romans as Idumeans. All right, So they assumed a, a Hellenistic identity as Idumeans. Greeks and Romans called them Idumeans. Eventually they'd be conquered. The, um, the Maccabean kings didn't like having a bunch of Edomites <laughs> hanging out in South Judah. So they went down there and they conquered them. And then what do you do with a conquered people? You ever conquered a people? What have, what have you done with them afterwards? Okay. I mean, the, the worst part about conquering a people is you've got to do something with them. Okay? I mean, the ones that live. But here's the thing. They can't go back to Edom because the Nabataeans are in Edom. So they conquered them. And they let them stay there on the sole condition that they convert to Judaism. And so they did. They converted to Judaism right there on the spot. And they started to track the first, second, and third generation, whereby they would be allowed entry into the, into the temple. And then the most famous of all the Edomians built them a new temple, okay? Because King Herod was one of these Edomians we're talking about, okay? They became great collaborators with the Romans. The pinnacle of their success was Herod the Great. And so, um, and, and, and in part, it's a little bit, you know... Western powers, they move into the Middle East and they think they got all the answers and then they just make a mess of stuff. So Rome comes into the Middle East and they, they form these alliances with the Edomians and they can't tell the difference between an Edomite and a Jew. I mean, aren't they all the same anyway? Not to them, they're not. <laughs> okay. And so you take an Edomian, you take a, an Edomite like Herod or his father, Aristobulus, right? You take his father, and say, well, you know, you can, you can lead the Jews. You tell, tell Herod, you can be king of the Jews. And Herod's all excited to be king of the Jews. Well, the Jews weren't that excited. <laughs> In fact, not at all. See. Anyway, he married a daughter of one of the last Maccabean kings, and so he has a, a by marriage, he gets a connection to the, to the uh, Maccabean throne, the Hasmonean dynasty. But um, he thought it was a connection, and the Jews didn't accept that. He's, a, he's an Edomite. What are they going to do with an Edomite king and a Roman puppet? As far as that goes. All right. So uh, this is uh, some of the, uh, again, post-captivity Old Testament studies. 
and uh, what takes us from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what happens during the 400 years in between Malachi and Matthew. Okay, you know, we got that blank page in the middle of our Bible that you flip to the blank page and it says New Testament, and then you flip and it says Matthew, and now you're in the New Testament. You just went ahead 400 years, and there's a whole lot of new stuff like Romans and Pharisees and and all this. There's stuff that wasn't in the Old Testament. And uh, some of these studies then uh, become significant for us. All right. Oh, goodness, there's a whole lot more here. Um, The AI that was mentioned is not the AI you're familiar with. That was not the Joshua AI. It's a different AI. Likewise, the Basra that's mentioned here is not the Basra you're familiar with. It's a uh, the one that's more famous is uh, is a Moabite Basra. This is an uh, an Edomite Basra. Um, Basra means sheepfold. So there's there's a lot of places that are named that. Um, there's other names that are in common between some of these places. We're okay with that. Uh, again, it's uh, they're under deception. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. That's verse sixteen. You who live in the clefts of the rock, you think you're untouchable, I'm bringing you down. I can reach you. You think no one can reach you, I can reach you. And uh, if you ever tour uh, Jordan today, you can go see the, the, the cliff dwellings in Petra and you can see some of the other archaeological remains and, and different things there. They thought that they were uh, safe and God says no. Uh, verse 17, Eden will become an object of horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss at all his wounds. And this is language that's come up earlier in the book. It's language we come to again and again. It is interesting language to me. In fact, we'll see more of it when we get to uh, Kedar and Hazor. Um, We're going to see some language of haunting. Just a little bit of it here. There's more that comes up later. Um, Ask me if I believe in ghosts or do I believe in haunted houses? Do I believe in haunted? Yes, I do. The scripture talks about it, and it's you know the, the paranormal. No, it's called demons. It's called fallen angels. It's called the angelic conflict, and part of the consequences of God's judgment when a land is defiled, a land is sometimes given over, and a land that is so defiled is no longer fit for human habitation. The only thing it's good for is to become a prison, to become a a confinement place for uh, for demons. All right. You ever consider where, why the places they pick to, to put prisons? If the state of Texas wants to build a new prison somewhere, do you know what kind of work that goes into that? Because there's everybody and their sister, they're going to say, not in my backyard, right? And there's going to be a huge fight about not here, not here, not here. And so, you know, it ends up being halfway to El Paso or somewhere in, in, in the middle of nowhere. Well, Think about places that are not fit for human habitation and they become the haunt of demons. It's not a fair analogy, but it, it communicates slightly, okay? It, it's, it's not fit for a decent human being. It's given over to the demons. That's what I'm trying to say. And uh, we'll, say, we'll see more on that when we get to um, the Arabs later in the chapter. Arabs and civilization, um, they don't mix well often. We'll see that as well. All right, so hissing. And uh, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, says the Lord, no one will live there, nor will a son of man reside in it. Well, why is that two different things? No one will live there, nor will a son of man reside in it. And we realize, okay, we can approach this on the human level, we can approach this on the angelic level. And there's two different things being spoken of. All right. 19, verse 19, Behold, one will come up like a lion from the thickets of the Jordan against a perennially watered pasture. For in an instant I will make him run away from it, and whoever is chosen I shall appoint over it. For who is like me and who will summon me into court? And who then is the shepherd who can stand against me? And it's interesting how God works sovereignly in not only their downfall, but the selection of certain Edomites are going to rise to prominence. Certain Edomites, why is it that Aristobulus has the success that he has with the Greek and Roman political world? Anyway, there's more to say about that. 
Verse 20, therefore hear the plan of the Lord which he has planned against Edom and his purposes which he has purposed against the inhabitants of Teman. Surely they will drag them off, even the little ones of the flock. Surely he will make their pasture desolate because of them. The earth has quaked at the noise of their downfall. There is an outcry. The noise of it has been heard at the Red Sea. Behold, he will mount up and swoop like an eagle and spread out his wings against Basra and the hearts of the mighty men of Edom in that day will be like the heart of a woman in labor. Okay, so your soldier who should stand brave and should defend, uh, all he can do is just hold on and scream, <laughs> wait for it to be finished. Okay, I mean, that's essentially the woman in labor, right? Um, all you can do is just, you know, endure it, endure the pain, scream, hate the guy that did that to you, and then, <laughs> and then wait for it to be over. Okay, and that's, uh, that's, What's going to happen here? All right. From there to Damascus. Man, three more to go. Uh, Damascus, verses 23 through 27. It's called the city of praise. Who calls it that? They do. All right. And it's interesting because everybody's kind of proud of where they come from and you know everybody brags about where they're from and whatever. Uh, but it seems like Damascus more so. Uh, and they just loved talking about the great, everything is better in Damascus. Okay. The rivers are better. Uh, the, the, the fruit is better. The fig tree is better. Um, the oasis is better. I mean, everything's better in Damascus. Uh, and no one would ever want to come destroy Damascus because everybody loves Damascus. You know, who would want to destroy it? They would want to come and do business there. They wouldn't want to come and prosper. And their big defense mechanism is not that they were unreachable, it's just the opposite. They were very reachable. They were in the middle of everything. They were the, the, the key uh, linchpin on all the trade routes and all the commerce passed through them and all the caravans. And they were so wealthy. Who would want to destroy that? No, get on board. Anyway, the city of praise. And it's going to be silenced in this uh, aspect. All right. Concerning Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are put to shame. Uh, Hamath is north about 100 miles and Arpad is north beyond that. Um, For they have heard bad news. They are disheartened. There is anxiety by the sea. It cannot be calmed. Damascus has become helpless. She has turned away to flee and panic has gripped her. Distress and pangs have taken hold of her like a woman in childbirth. There it is again. How the city of praise has not been deserted, the town of my joy. And uh, it's a little bit of a confusing verse there. We're not sure who's singing it. I, I got a good idea and we can talk about that. Therefore her young men will fall in her streets and all the men of war will be silenced in that day, declares the Lord of hosts. And so it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It didn't come. Hey, we're great. Then it comes, okay? And uh, then they're silenced in that day. I will set fire to the wall of Damascus and it will devour the fortified towers of Ben-Hadad. All right, so here's Damascus, the city of praise. The same Damascus we read about in the news today, the same capital of Syria today, the same Bashar al-Assad that's the president of of, uh, (coughs) Syria today. Okay? And uh, you say, well, it hasn't been destroyed yet. It's still there. That's true. All right, related messages against Damascus were given by Isaiah and Amos. Isaiah and Amos, we're talking 150 years ago, before Jeremiah. Related messages were given. Isaiah said, Damascus, you're going to get it. Amos says, Damascus, you're going to get it. Jeremiah says, Damascus, you're going to get it. And the people of Damascus said, yeah, 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 we heard it before. Okay, don't believe you, right? Similar to how many times have you encountered it? How many times have I encountered it? Second Peter 3 says, In the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own godly loss and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues the same as it's always been. These skeptics, they say, Well, Scripture hasn't been fulfilled, therefore it can't be fulfilled, or it won't be fulfilled, or God was wrong, or God was lying, or there is no God, it's a waste of time, leave me alone, quit bugging me with this. Okay, And they think again and again and again that because it hasn't happened yet, we're great. Again, verse 25, how the city of praise has not been deserted, the town of my joy, we're great. 
Okay. Well, it will happen. Okay. And as many times as it's been conquered, it has never been raised, it has never been leveled, it's never been obliterated as it's been promised to. But it will happen because God said it's going to happen. In fact, it's going to become an, a, a glowing ember of, I think, nuclear uh, radiation <laughs> uh, or something. Uh, it's going to be a perpetual display in uh, <coughs> the millennial kingdom because of the uh, judgment that's going to come upon it in the, in the tribulation. Damascus, Hamath, and Arpad, they were all Aramean city-states. <coughs> they were all Aramean city-states who fell to the Assyrians and then again to the Babylonians. So they were conquered. Isaiah says you're going to get conquered. They were conquered. They weren't destroyed, but they were conquered. They fell to the Assyrians and they fell again to the Babylonians. They're going to fall again to the Greeks. Alexander's going to t- just take them. They're going to fall again to the Romans. All right, Pompey is the general that comes through here and and forces them to submit. And every time they're conquered, um, Damascus isn't destroyed. It's not left a smoldering heap. But it will, because God said it will. If you want to do some more study on this, um, it's all through 1 and 2 Kings. And even earlier, it's all through 2 Samuel. David had to deal with a lot of these guys. Ben-Hadad and a lot of these kings... Uh, David had to deal with these kings. The Aramean city-states became a uh, became an issue there, particularly to David's north. All right, and um, so a lot of these city-states uh, and the Arameans that he was at war with, um, some of the other uh, things that Solomon had to deal with, and then the northern kingdom. Once there was a northern kingdom, they were constantly dealing with these city-states. When um, when uh, the king was afraid, and, and Isaiah stood up and said, "Hey, ask for me a sign." Make it as high as you want or as low as you want. And remember that? Isaiah chapter 7. And the king wouldn't ask for a sign. He said, oh, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. The whole story there in chapter 7 was all about his fear of an Aramean king. It was all about the, the, the fear that, uh, that these Arameans were going to destroy them. Anyway, there's, there's more on that. The city of praise has not been deserted. The city of praise has not been deserted. We really don't know why it's called the city of praise, and we don't know who calls them that besides themselves. You know, does anybody else call you that besides you? You know, who who calls themselves that? Austin calls themselves the live music capital of the world. Well, did you give yourself that name? Anybody else call you that name? Um, you know, is this just your opinion? Um, Anyway, uh, but it is interesting, though, uh, when you see the pride of uh, Naaman there uh, in Second Kings 5, he is told, Elisha says, go wash seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be clean from your leprosy. And he gets all in a huff. He's offended. He says, well, what's wrong with the Parfar River? What's wrong with the waters of Damascus? And, <clears throat> and he has his own um, prejudice, his own hometown uh, his own hometown uh, celebrity that that these rivers should be good enough. They're the best rivers in the world. Say, well, kind of makes sense in terms of the city of praise. Let's see, here's the point. And I get it from Habakkuk chapter 2, and I think it applies here in this chapter. I think it applies in a lot of chapters. And if you get nothing else out of today, write down Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Right? That's H-A-B, Hab, Habakkuk. It's not H-E-B. It's not Hebrews. It's Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. You might think it's Hebrews 2 because Hebrews quotes this, but it's Habakkuk chapter 2. The, the righteous shall live by faith. And uh, in this application, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Okay, if you get to Zephaniah, you've gone too far. <clears throat> Habakkuk 2. And this is the answer. This is the answer to the city of praise. This is the answer to any critic who thinks that Isaiah 17, Amos 1, and Jeremiah 49 are all a pack of lies. That Damascus has never been destroyed the way the prophets promised that it would. Just wait. Just wait. Because prophets that spoke to their own generation, they also spoke eschatologically to the ultimate deliverance of Israel. And so in Habakkuk 2, it says in verse 2, the Lord answered me and said, record the vision, inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. 
for the vision is yet for the appointed time. Who appoints those times? God's in charge of all this. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, who's that? Satan ultimately, but any human being that decides not to wait, that says it's not going to happen. The proud one is the one that insists his timetable has to be God's timetable or God's wrong. His soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. See, walking by faith means trusting in his timing, trusting in his ways. As as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways than our ways, his thoughts than our thoughts. With the Lord, a a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. Though it tarries, wait for it. The vision is yet for the appointed time. Judgment may be delayed, but it will still come. And so all these folks that think it's not coming, it's coming. Okay? It's coming. All right, two more. Kedar and Hazor. We get to combine these guys. Kedar and Hazor. Prosperity and tranquility, if you can call it that. Well, yeah, Scripture calls it that, so we can call it that. Verses 28 through 33. Concerning Kedar and the kingdoms of Hazor, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated, thus says the Lord. And uh, this one's unique of all the other ones because they were so nomadic and because they were so transient that they were constantly on the move. Even their villages were on the move. Okay, uh, It's hard to pinpoint where some of these villages were because they didn't always stay in the same place anyway. They would pick up and move. And they would, uh, that was kind of their strategy. They were nomads. They were raiders. They would constantly, you know, why bother planting a field if you could just go take somebody else's crops when they were harvesting their field, you know, and then run back to the desert again. Okay, that's their strategy. That's their lifestyle uh, is stealing from others because it's better than working, <laughs> you know, better than, I mean, working for yourself. Are you kidding? Just go take it from the, the schmuck that is working. That's their tactic. That's their um modus operandi. And so this is what gets uh, rebuked here. Kedar speaks of darkness, speaks of the, the color black. Uh, it speaks of the, uh, the black-wooled uh, uh, sheep and goats that they raised. Their tents were always black-wool uh, tents, which to me seems incredibly hot in that part of the world, but that's what they were known for. And uh, you read Song of Solomon lately? And uh, the Shulamith, the bride there, she says, I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. And she compares her skin to these goats, these, uh, the, the tents of Kedar in that uh, poetry. All right. Arise, thus says the Lord, arise, go up to Kedar or Kedar and devastate the men of the east. They will take away their tents and their flocks. They will carry off for themselves their tent curtains, all their goods and their camels, and they will call out to one another, terror on every side. Run away, flee, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Hazor, declares the Lord. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has formed a plan against you and devised a scheme against you. Arise, go up against a nation which is at ease, which lives securely, declares the Lord. It has no gates or bars, they dwell alone. Their camels will become plunder, and their many cattle for booty. I will scatter to all the winds those who cut the corners of their hair, and I will bring their disaster from every side, declares the Lord. Hazor will become a haunt of jackals, a desolation forever. No one will live there, nor will a son of man reside in it. Again, we got the duplication of things here that almost seems redundant until we venture into the invisible realm, the angelic realm, and see that uh, we have uh, demons in view here as well as human beings. There is a related message against Arabia that Isaiah delivers back in chapter 21. Isaiah 21, verses 13 through 17. I think it is very parallel to this text here today. And you want to study both passages in tandem. Kedar and the kingdoms of Hazor. By the way, Hazor just means village. Okay, so if you have kingdoms of villages. Um, yeah, that's quite a kingdom. 
Uh, this represents Bedouin Arab tribes that are descended from Ishmael. Hazar was a personal name given to uh, Ishmael. I think Ishmael's second born or maybe his firstborn was named uh, Hazor in Genesis 25:13. But Kedar, the blackness of, of the wool, the blackness of the sheep, the uh, darkness, of, it's a word for darkness or gloom, and uh, their message certainly is one of darkness or gloom. Mentioned here, mentioned in chapter 2, mentioned in Ezekiel 27, mentioned in Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And so this is what we're talking about. We're talking about these, no, uh, these no, nomads, Bedouins, moving from place to place. And, uh, you know, can a land be conquered? Well, let's just move to a different land, okay? And uh, we'll always keep moving. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's got a plan for that. Uh, you can't keep moving because he's got you. And that's part of his plan. All right. But what are these jackals about? Hazor will become a haunt of jackals, a desolation forever. Do you remember when we studied angelology, advanced angelology, and we gave you all the terminology for the uh, fallen angels, evil spirits, demons? So many of those used um, animal language. They used uh, zoological terms. Uh, A lot of them were uh, scavengers. Okay, either of the dog variety or the cat variety or the bird variety, but they were all scavengers and uh, zoological, you know, animals that that inhabit waste places. So, are we talking about zoological jackals here? Or are we talking about something demonic? And I believe in most of these cases, in the prophetic applications, we have demons that are in view, evil spirits that are in view, and uh, some of those studies I thought were very conclusive as we. Uh, discuss this. Why does mythology talk about hellhounds? Do you know what the hounds of hell are all about? Cerebus, the three-headed dog. I mean, even Harry Potter brings in some of the, the, the mythology of the, of the ancient world. Why is it that we have the mythology? Why is it that all the pagan nations of antiquity are terrified of hellhounds? These dogs that are unleashed out of hell. Because if you hear one baying, guess what? It's coming for you. Anyway, the hounds of hell haunting Hazor henceforth hinders human habitation. I'm kind of proud of that, actually. That was the the longest part of this slideshow, was working on that point right there. Human beings can't live there anymore, okay? And what happens? What happens if a venue is so haunted? If territory, maybe it's a, maybe it's not an entire land. Maybe it's you know, maybe it's just a smaller. Maybe it's a house or a a property. But humans just—they're not comfortable there. They don't sleep there. Strange things are happening. There's noises. Say, Pastor, you sound superstitious or goofy. I, I can't believe I'm hearing you say this. It's real. The Bible talks about it. It talks about the the invisible realm. And what happens when there are effects in the physical, visible world? And uh, this is not the only text that deals with that. In fact, back to chapter 9 and verse 11, chapter 10 and verse 22. Next week we'll see more of this in chapter 50, verses 39 and 40. You ever wonder what happened to the Sahara Desert? It didn't used to be desert. What were the demons like there? Or the Gobi Desert or some of these other places. I wonder, what was the demonism like on Antarctica before that place became Tohu Wabohu? What happened there? How about Isaiah 13, verses 19 through 22? How about Isaiah 34, verses 13 through 15? Read through those. Every single one of those, you're going to find jackals. You're going to find owls. You're going to find uh, birds of some carrion, some scavenger variety. You're going to find the dogs uh, and in some cases, the translations are not always consistent, and they need to be. They should be better consistent. In fact, it's not entirely clear that the jackals are canine. Why is it that jackal is tan, T-A-N, and tanine is dragon? Okay, riddle me that. I asked uh, a Dallas Seminary professor that one time. In fact, Ronald Allen, uh, head of their Old Testament department, their Hebrew department, I said, explain this to me, tan and tanin. He goes, oh, well, they're not connected. Wait a minute. They're not connected. He told me they're not connected. I said, well, wait a minute. 
aren't you the one that wrote the uh, the Leviathan motif in the Ugaritic uh, mythology? You wrote that back in the 60s. That was your thesis uh, for your, your uh, THM thesis. And he goes, how did you know that? <laughs> anyway, like my buddy Glenn Carnegie gave me a copy of it. I've, I've, had, I've read it several times. It's a good paper. Well, I don't believe that anymore. Okay. <laughs> you got your paper, you got your grade, I guess you're good, but you don't believe that anymore? I believe it. I believe Leviathan's a dragon. The Levi Tan, by the way, Leviathan. He didn't like that either. Uh, but Levi Tan, Tan, jackal. Tanin, dragon. Anyway. Uh, Hazor will become a haunt of jackals, a desolation forever. No one will live there. And I don't know, I mean, I'm out of time. We could, you can look at these. Uh, read through those also if you want. Re-listen to the, the angelology stuff that we did back in the uh, Second Corinthians series and uh, review that stuff as well. We've got to uh, finish up here with uh, Elam. And this is perhaps the strangest of all. This is the one where you scratch your head and say, well, what's this doing in here? Who are these guys? <laughs> okay. Verses 34 through 39. Jeremiah's catalog of Gentile doom wraps up with Elam. That's right. Elam. Who? The Elamites. Okay. Who are nowhere near anybody else in this chapter. Geographically, chronologically, uh, racially, historically, um, anything. They are on the far side of Babylon. In uh, today would be Iran, okay? It would be Persia in uh, Old Testament history. So before we get to the grand finale of Babylon, we get two full chapters on Babylon, chapter 50 and 51. Next week and the week after, we're dealing with Babylon, okay? And before we get to the grand finale of Babylon, uh, the wrap-up here in chapter 49 is Elam. There is no comparable message given by any other prophet. There is no comparable message. There is no other oracle against Elam anywhere in the Old Testament. There are only very passing comments to Elam in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, and in Daniel. In fact, Daniel has a vision where he's standing in the citadel of Susa by a river in the land of, El- in the land of Elam. They're just mentioned in brief, brief passing. From Shem to Kedarlaomer to Ezra to Pentecost, the Elamites remain largely unexplained. Every time they show up in the Scripture, you're like, oh, that's who they are. And then you don't see them again. Until the next time they show up in Scripture, and you go, oh, that's who they are. Okay? He's the, uh, I think he's the firstborn of Shem in Genesis 10.22. But we don't pay attention to him because who pays attention to Elam? Um... Man, I'm running late. Elam, in Genesis 10, 22, he is Semitic. I think he's, is he firstborn? Let's see. Um, yes. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arpachshad and Lud and Aram. And, and then the sons of Aram were Uz and Hol and Gether and Mash. All right, so Elam is the firstborn. You think we would know more about the firstborn of Shem. He's the God of Shem. Shem is the line of Christ. Shem is the blessed one. Shem is probably Melchizedek. Shem is a great hero. Okay? He outlives Abraham as he gets off the ark and lives for centuries thereafter. Shem's an amazing hero. And Eber and, uh, and uh, Elam is his firstborn. And then Asher. Tons of history on the Assyrians. <clears throat> and Arpachshad, that's what Abraham descends from. Abraham and all the Hebrews defend, descend from Arpachshad. And Lud and Aram, we know more about the Lud. Uh, Lud is Turkey and, and uh, Aram. Uh, we've been seeing Aram already, the Arameans of Damascus. Anyway, so that's Elam. And Keterleomer is the king of Elam. Abraham has to do battle against him. There's Elam mentioned in Ezra. There's Elam... On the day of Pentecost, there are Jewish people that come to Jerusalem from Elam. You're like, oh yeah, those guys. 
They remain largely unexplained. They're not even on this map because to the east of this map is Babylon and then to the other side of Babylon is Elam, the Elamites. Elam, by the way, comes from the same Hebrew as Olam, eternity. From Olam, Megolam, from eternity to eternity. So Shem named his firstborn son Eternity. And we don't know a thing about him beyond that. It's, it's curious to me. All right. Well, he's got a word against him. It involves angels. It involves four winds. It involves a scattering. A scattering and a shattering. Scattered in verse 36. Shattered in verse 37. A throne that will sit there. There will actually be a battlefield throne for judgment. Destroy out of it king and princes, declares the Lord. But it will come about in the last days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. Elam has a land grant in the millennial kingdom. Anyway, very mysterious. I wish I knew more. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this day and this time together. And Father, uh, so far, you've gotten us through 49 chapters. We've got just three more to go. Thank you for opening our eyes and, and teaching us, Father, how much more there is to study. And the more we know, the more we know we don't know. And we just got more work to do. Thank you for being faithful. Father, thank you for your sovereign control over human history, the rise and fall of nations, and our place in your plan. Father, I pray that our nation would be humble before you, that believers in our nation would be hungry for teaching. Father, the, uh, it's not going to be President Trump that makes America great again, Father. If it happens, it's going to be because your children are humble and hungry for your truth. So, Father, bless this congregation and so many more like it. Father, reward those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will just.